everyone, it's Josh. Before we start the episode, I wanted to share some thoughts about some of my favorite podcast series. The first podcast I fell in love with was On Being with Krista Tippett. I used to take long walks and listen to her talk with amazing thinkers and doers. From On Being, I got hooked on Radiolab, which since 2002 has been devoted to investigating a strange world and making science more accessible. For a while there, I got pretty hooked on Intelligence Squared US, which digs deep into the great questions of our times using an Oxford style of debate. A couple years ago, I became obsessed with two truly epic series. In the first, called Hidden Brain, host Shankar Vedantam uses science and storytelling to reveal the unconscious patterns that drive human behavior, shape our choices, and direct our relationships. In the second, called How I Built This, host Guy Raz dives into the stories behind some of the world's best-known companies and weaves a narrative journey about innovators, entrepreneurs, and idealists, and the movements that they built. I also love the series Next Question with host Katie Couric and The Daily with host Michael Barbaro. Finally, a shout out to a very cool podcast coming out of Hawaii called Journey with Mumpo. Mumpo is spelled M-P-H-O, Journey with Mumpo. Host Mumpo takes her listeners through conversations around the mind, the body, the heart, and the soul. Please check it out. Anyway, the best way to support your favorite podcasts is to listen often and give them a rating in your favorite podcast store. And now, on to our show. Imagine a place where students use media, creativity, communication, and critical thinking to make stories come to life. A place where authentic audiences are enlightened by the kids who live there. Hawk Media Productions at Kealakehe Intermediate School, located in Kona, Hawaii, is an example of that place where students strive daily for the summit. From school broadcasts, Hikino stories, community spotlights, and now podcasts, Hawk Media Productions hopes to inspire other schools to get involved in meaningful learning in the community and the world. Believe it or not, all schools have the students, teachers, and community partners to be the spark for what school could be in Hawaii. Welcome to Season 1, Semester 2 of the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast. This series features the stories of creative and innovative educators who are influencing, motivating, and inspiring Hawaii, the nation, and the world. Now, let's send it off to your host, Josh Rapoon. Hey everybody, we're back with Brian Dote, currently UI designer and iOS developer at Tapiki LLC. Brian, um, let's say that I'm the coordinator of a Hawaii design thinking team working in the area of education. And let's say that our prompt, the team's prompt is redesign educator professional development. So clearly, because it's 2020, my design team is designing professional development for the 21st century, not the 20th century. So we're in our initial empathy phase, and you, Brian, are one of our interviews, one of our first interviews. So here's my team's empathy question for you. My team's question is, how do you, Brian, professionally develop yourself day in and day out? 
Wow, that's a, that's a good one. Um, I I love professional development. I I love to always keep learning, and I and I I kind of go back to the shelf life uh, analogy I used earlier. I, I think that if I stop learning, the timer goes off in my shelf life and it starts to tick. And if it ticks for too long, then I might as well stop doing what I'm doing um, because I'm so far behind. I I think that what I do as a strategy is I combine online learning even before this pandemic. Uh, even before the world we face today, I did a lot of online learning uh, and a lot of online reading. And what I do is I I basically find subjects that I think are needed <clears throat> in terms of my professional uh, toolbox of skills, and I go out and learn them. And I, and I totally feel confident that I can learn anything. Um, there's not much I think that I can't learn, and so I just go at it. Um, I, I look at online training. I watch videos. I, I read books. I'm actually probably a million times faster reading than watching videos. So I do like reading books uh, about subjects because I, I can go through it a lot faster. But I, I do take online training for the skills that I that I don't have. Um, as, as a matter of fact, I'm right now going through online training to get some uh, some cloud certification that I that I think will be helpful in, in the work that I do. And so I never ever ever stop learning. I think if you if you stop learning, you might as well stop doing whatever you're doing. And is there a, a way for you to pinpoint when you became aware that you were that kind of I'm never going to stop learning person? Like, were you always that way, Brian? Or is the is kind of the culture of your life? Did that uh, like how did that happen? I think that it was the way I've always been. I think that the, the desire to learn. Um, is a natural offshoot of curiosity, and I'm, I'm naturally very curious. Uh, so if I if I come across something that I don't know, I don't understand, then I will want to, and I want to know and understand it, then I will go and do the research to to learn more about it. So I'm curious. I, I'm I'm curious to learn. I'm curious to observe what other people do and and sort of figure out why they do things that certain way. Uh, and I I learn a lot from that. Um, but it's a natural sort of innate curiosity, and then. With that natural innate curiosity, I was so fortunate to choose a career path that I think requires it. Um, you know, this is not this is not a, a career path where discoveries are made once every hundred years. This is a career path where the whole paradigm shifts every five years. And so, if you are not continually evolving, if you're not continually improving, um, then then you're, then you're done. You're toast. And and so maybe I chose this career because of my natural curiosity, or more, more likely, I am good at what I do because I'm naturally curious. I'm not sure, but they both go hand in hand, and I think I've always been that way. Well, I'd, I'd, I'd love your thoughts on, on the idea that, you know, in education, and I was in education for 17 years, we spend so much time as educators talking about how to get kids to be lifelong learners, and yet so many educators are not lifelong learners themselves. Um, they don't professionally yep. develop themselves. And, and, you know, what, what are your thoughts about, I, I guess maybe, Brian, what I'm sensing right now, especially here in Hawaii, is, and, and referencing, again, Twitter, because that's where you see a lot of evidence of it, that as professional educators professionally develop themselves, they're getting closer and closer to the secret sauce of knowing what it takes to get a kid to become a lifelong learner. What are your thoughts about that? I love that. I love that. I, I hope we, uh, I hope the community continues to to strive towards that because that that is the key. Is the is the um, driving students 
curiosity and fostering their curiosity so that they become lifelong learners. Uh, I think that that in that spirit, that's that's what education should should be. The the challenge is that you know we we are humans, and so we are you know creatures of habit, and we sort of once we get within certain swim lanes, we stay in those swim lanes. And and I, and I throw out there like, what would it be like if an educator was forced, not optional, but forced to throw away 20% of their curriculum every year, mm. um, and had to re re like you cannot teach the same thing you taught last year, or at least 20% of it needs to be um, taught. Painful, but taught it, right? right. And, and it's, a, it, it's sort of cathartic but it, and, and painful, and it means a lot of work. And so I'm, I'm saying this just from a purely, I'm a non-educator, so I'm sure there's, there's educators that, that um, think that's, that's the craziest idea ever. But, you know, something of that nature where it is forced to continually evolve um, because because there's a, there's a reason why we have evolution, right? It is, it is to to move us along a path to improvement, mm. and, and you and evolution ends up in dead ends and makes mistakes, and you go down paths, and that was the wrong path. But it also means that by exploring these paths, that you continue to get better and stronger and smarter and faster and, and whatever it may be. And so, I think that we we need that in students. Students shouldn't sort of um, have a static learning environment they need a very dynamic one mm. and and obviously when curiosity leads the way students are learning things that they're naturally curious about then then the passion is right there right. and they're passionate about what they're learning because that's what they want to learn you know they, they want to explore these things and they want to learn these concepts but they don't necessarily want to learn it in the context of how we teach it or they don't necessarily want to learn it in the context of how it's been taught for the last 30 years right. um the world is different. The world has changed. So, right. so I think that uh, that natural curiosity, you're right, should be, or that that um, sort of continual improvement process, should be from from administration all the way to the student. Uh, curiosity should be fostered everywhere. Right, right. So, so perfect segue to um, question number seven. So let let's say that I'm also Brian, the facilitator of another Hawaii design team, and this one is working to redesign the 150-year-old, quote-unquote, school transcript. Um, so our question, our empathy question to you, um, Brian, is, oh, boy, and I'm sorry, you know, this is a big one, but how do we transition? <laughs> how do we transition from a traditional metric like an SAT score or a year-end multiple-choice test to the gathering of 21st-century artifacts of learning? Like, walk us through, in your mind, how that process works in the world of business and technology and therefore in the world of education as well. Wow. Wow. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Man. Um, well, I'll start, I'll start uh, at one end and then uh, work, work my way back to the other end. Okay. As a, as a hiring, hiring manager in, in the technology space. And when I was at Apple, I, I did a lot of hiring. Um, one thing that I never looked at was where you went to school and what you studied. And, and, you know, I say that kind of facetiously, but it didn't matter. Um, it didn't matter that you went to school A or school B or you, you studied in comp sci or you were this or that. What really mattered in the interview was your passion for the kind of work that you, you, you do or you want to do or you are going to do, and then how you tackled the problems and challenges that you faced during that work. And you can find very, very, very passionate people who 
stayed up late at night, every night for, for days on end to solve this one problem, to fix this one thing and something they were building for fun. They were building it for fun. Like, uh, hey, I'm building this, this web application and it's supposed to do this, this, and this. And I couldn't figure out this one piece, but I, I kept trying and I did this, this, and this. And here's how I solved it, you know, seven days later with, uh, with a Red Bull every night and staying up to 3 a.m. But I solved it and here's how. To me, that kind of individual, that kind of passion, and that kind of problem-solving ability trumps any educational, you know, educational uh, CV that I was given. So, oftentimes as a hiring manager, I, it didn't matter to me like your your educational resume. And if I if I take that as a analogy for what you're describing, then the the metric-based measurement of SAT scores and other things uh, shouldn't shouldn't matter as much either. And the artifacts that you produce, the, the artifacts that in your portfolio are, are really the things that you should be proud of or should want to share or should be able to story tell me how it is that you arrived at that, how it is that you created it and what, what challenges you faced while you were doing it and what you learned. Um, when you when you stand in front of me and you say that you've got a, I don't know what the scores are like, like you got a 1470 on your SAT, Tell me a story about that. And the story is entirely different than the story of someone whose digital artifact was, uh, I don't know, an, 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 a movie project that they, they shot in their iPhone and did an iMovie and published to the web that talks about their life at grandma, right? Mm, right. Or whatever, whatever it is. The, 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 the power of the emotions and the curiosity and the passion behind the portfolio is incredibly, incredibly different than, than the, the raw scores. Mm-hmm. And the story behind the scores, the scores is just not quite as compelling to me. So mm-hmm. that's sort of my take. And, and, and if I, if I was, uh, had a magic wand, I think it's one of those things that you might have to just pull the, pull the bandaid off the scat and, 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 and rip it off and, and just, and just go because I don't see how you reconcile those two slowly over time. And, um, I'm not, I've never been in college admissions. I've never sort of worked in those areas. So I'm sure it makes, makes it sounds totally crazy and makes no sense. But I think that it's, it's sort of an all or nothing. Some schools or all schools or slowly over time, schools should just move that way mm. um, as part of the entrance requirements and move towards, you know, um, the, the artifacts and, and the digital portfolios or the portfolios in general and, and move away from the scores. Wow, Brian. It tells you so much about a student to see a portfolio, so much more about right. a student to see a portfolio. Right. right. Yeah. I mean, the thing that I'm, what I'm thinking about in this moment is that like there from my schooling and, and I went to public school, um, elementary school on the windward side of Oahu until, um, you know, the seventh grade. And then I went to Punahou school, seventh grade through graduation. And I, and I'm just listening to what you're talking about, Brian. It's like, there are two stories one story is the story of all of my grades and the grade slips and the transcripts and the tests and all of that, a lot of which I actually ended up keeping. I mean, I didn't know I had them until I opened a box one day a few years ago, and there they all were. <laughs> and I looked at this, and I'm like, wow, this is such a shallow story about who I was in school. Um, and by those metrics, so like mediocre. Um, but on the other hand, I have... On a DVD, I have a movie that I made um, in which I translated a, um, you know, a fable in, in one, of my, one of my English classes um, into an actual full-blown cinematic event. And oh, I oh sh- my goodness. We must watch this. 
oh, it's fantastic. And I, and I, if I don't say so myself, and I shot it on Super 8, right? And, and it involved getting a horse. I had to get a horse into the story. So I had to go get my brother's horse. And my brothers were the actors and we had cars and the whole thing. And I, I shot and produced this film. And this was back in, what, 1974. And Brian, that story is a really deep story about what I cared about as a kid and what I was interested in. And here it still exists as the one artifact of learning from all of those years in school. And like, and I'm super proud of it. And I really care about that thing. Um, so to, to your point, yeah, different stories have different depths and, and we want them. Yeah. Yeah, because, I mean, if, if you look back on your educational life, and, and that's clearly what you've done, and you, and you look back, you don't remember the day that you sat in the classroom and you got the 98 out of 100 on the math test of Chapter 7 in Book 2, right? Yeah. But you remember making that film, and I bet you learned so much. You you, you hacked it, and I'm sure, because you, you clearly didn't have all the skills of cinematography and, and all of those other things, so you figured it out. Correct. Like you grabbed the Super 8, and you innovated, and you needed this, so you you solved. You problem solved the whole way through through these little micro problems that came up to problem solve to build this film, which I bet in your heart has such a richer story that that you probably will never forget. And all the math and the science tests. So I mean, I'm not like pooping math and science, but just you know because they're flawed numbers, uh, or the SAT that you took and you got this score, like those things, like they don't they don't resonate with you. Right. And and so I, I think that that clearly shows the difference. Wow. You know, Brian, my my most intense memory of testing is that I took the graduate record exams in 1993 because I was thinking about getting a master's degree in history. And, and that was before I'd you know gone into teaching. So I was thinking about going into teaching and the math section, even though I'd studied for months, I just after I did one problem, I'm like, forget it. So I just answered A, B, C, D, E, A, B, C, D, E all the way through the Scantron. And you know what? I ended up in the 64th percentile nationally on the grad for just by answering A, B, C, D, E. That told me as much as I needed to know about testing. <laughs> it's like, oh, my God. Wow. Yeah. Well, was... I guess you copied my answers. Yeah. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> so, Brian, I have a, I have a follow-up to this. So if a school, okay. if a school shifts, and, and I know this was happening at the time that you were at Mid-Pacific, and it's continued to happen at Mid-Pacific, um, if a school shifts towards artifacts of learning and away from traditional tests and papers and projects that are prescribed, um, clearly teachers will then have to um, reverse engineer learning in the classroom because they can no longer, you know, just account for learning in the way that they were doing it before. So the learning has to change. So how did how did that particular problem present itself to you at Mid Pacific, and how did you guys go after it? So I I'm going to answer in my my best recollection, and I'll probably butcher it. So uh, apologies to to everyone involved, but. You know, I think the, the the key to to that and the and what I'll call the digital portfolio or the artifact of learning um, comes with it the change in the way you do assessment, and that was a, a fundamental shift at New Pacific at the time was was changing or or attempting to change or slowly changing the methodology of assessment and how it was done and you know the the, the whole formative versus summative and um, changing changing the way you assess learning uh, allows you to do that assessment on different artifacts. So if you assess learning through through um, your score in an exam, uh, through to a you know, uh, 
A, B, C, D exam. That's that's one thing, and then that's sort of uh, one way to assess, and you you're fixed on that. But if you can then change your assessment so that you can measure and understand a student's progression through uh, through a learning environment of a subject through non-test artifacts, then then you've leveled up. Like then then you've uh, then you've then you've gotten to the point where you can do a portfolio-based system. Um, mm. I think that that is incredibly difficult for everyone. Uh, it's not it's not easy on any front. It is not easy for parents to understand what the hell you're doing um, because they are used to uh, what is a 98%, you know, what is an A, what is a score uh, in the world and the education environment that they grew up in and that they know, um, which is outdated obviously, but that's all they know. So parents are hard to bring along. Um, and then some teachers are hard, hard to bring along as well because they, that's entirely different, uses a different muscle, um, and it's not, it's not easy. It's not easy to assess someone in a different way um, using, you know, a, a score on a test is probably the most inaccurate but the easiest way to assess. And mm-hmm. so I, I can run that through the machine. It can tell me that you got 5 out of 10 wrong and you got a 50% and you got an F. Um, you turn in the, the DVD of the movie that you made that is trying to teach me the, your understanding of some subject matter, and that requires a lot of horsepower and processing on the teacher side. Mm. That, is a, that is an entirely different game, but, but that's what you need um, to make this whole thing work. And so as you shift teachers to doing assessment um, in that way, you, you need to build in the time and skills and training so that they can evolve and develop those skills uh, while you're trying to educate the parent community, um, some of which are freaking out because that's not what they're used to. Uh, and then students. But I think students, most students, naturally just gravitate to that. Like, I, I think they, they prefer um, assessment that is not purely quizzes and grades and uh, quizzes and tests. Yeah, that's so interesting. I did an episode with our recent 2019-2020 uh, Milken Award winner. Her name is... Mickey Kakesi, and she's a, a coding teacher at Eva Mackay Middle in West Oahu. And she talked about how she's deliberately working, Brian, to develop parents as allies to the work that she's doing in the classroom. Um, so she's telling the stories to them very deliberately and very you know, openly and sharing what's going on as a way of getting them to, to support the work that she's doing. And I thought, wow, that's brilliant. You know, if as you start to develop what you're doing in the classroom, it's really important to have all the all your allies lined up with you, especially if you're shifting from one paradigm to another. That's that's very cool. Yeah, that's that's super. That's very smart and savvy. That's, yeah, that's a part of the community that you need to involve early on, um, and kind of it's a different journey for them, but it is a journey nonetheless, right? You have to bring them from what their expectations are, what their thoughts are. Uh, to educate them on what you're doing and how you're doing it. That's brilliant. Hey everyone, my name is Mae Kanata and I'm the editor for this episode. Stay with us, we'll be right back with Brian Dote after a short break. Hi there, my name is Mpo, the host of Journey with Mpo a podcast show dedicated to the exploration of mental health challenges, spirituality, and poetry. The show consists of real-life stories from mental health survivors, spiritual healers, and artists who use their artistry to maintain a healthy life balance. Tune in on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Podbean. 
Don't forget to review and subscribe. See you there. Hey everybody, we're back with Brian Dote, currently UI designer and iOS developer at Topiki LLC. Okay, so Brian, you're on the advisory board for the Academy of Information and Engineering Technology at Waipahu High School here on Oahu. Um, so Brian, what's happening at Waipahu that everyone in Hawaii or even uh, you know our radio audience is now in 36 countries, so we've got a global reach. Um, what's happening at Waipahu that everyone should know about? And what is Principal Keith Hayashi's role in supporting the initiatives that um, you're seeing on Waipahu's campus? Wow, yeah, it's uh, it's an amazing, amazing time for Waipahu High School, and it's an amazing time to be on the advisory council. Um, what what I'm seeing from, from my purview is that um, Mr. Hayashi is... is so supportive of all the initiatives that we're doing from a from a time and resource and funding perspective, as well as being willing to to try things out that haven't been tried before. Um, I, I think you know we overuse the term, but that's that's innovation, right? He he is super innovative in that sense and willing to to try things out that haven't been tried before, that where the path is not clear or um, haven't hasn't been trodden. So it's blazing trails. Um, what what I is we we have academies and they have different different sort of tracks and the engineering track and there's automotive and and there's um, computer science and all the other things. Uh, I mostly deal with the comp sci area, so the software development, web development, uh, computer security, cyber security, those areas, and that's that's sort of the areas that I, I uh, live and breathe in at the at the academy. Um, what's what's beautiful about the system is that uh, the curriculum is well laid out as far as its interplay between when you're an eighth grader all the way to your graduation year. And it combines your education with a lot of real world relevance, which I think is missing today mm-hmm. oftentimes, is, is the connection to the industry, um, not superficially, but, but truly a connection to the industry, where industry partners, which Keith has been able to um, gather and bring together are a part of the education community where we we're providing more than just uh, showing up at science fair and judging uh, or, you know, showing up at a job fair and, and doing mock interviews, but providing really the, the whole kit and caboodle uh, from internship opportunities for these students to professional development for the teachers to on-site visits of actual actual businesses and operation centers uh, so both the teachers and the students can see these things uh, to making sure, and this is where where I come in, to making sure that the things that are taught through the academy are relevant in the industry. And I think oftentimes the education curriculum is a few years behind what's being done in the industry. So you're teaching a student today tech that that is outdated or old or no longer used. And so when that student graduates now, that tech is like, you know, old school, like no one does that anymore. Um, why, did, why did you learn that? Uh, that? That can happen. And so what I do is I try to bring sort of relevancy to what's being taught to make sure that the skills the students are learning are what we use or need or predict that we would need in the industry of the future. So we, 
we help guide the curriculum through through the board meetings. We, we help guide the teachers to making sure that the the things that they're teaching in, in class today are relevant for these students, you know, in the workforce of tomorrow. Mm. Wow, that's just. You know, Brian, you're you're making my heart break here. I'm I'm sorry. I'm I'm thinking. I'm just thinking back to like, what if over my years, seventeen years as a history teacher at Punahou and La Pietra and Ilani School, what if there had been like an advisory board for the teaching of history at the school that I was teaching at, and that advisory board was made up of people who are on the cutting edge of teaching history you know, from around the country, because obviously the technologies were already there to connect virtually with people. You didn't have to, they didn't have to be in Hawaii. And how my experience as a teacher would have been entirely different if I'd had that advisory board that was helping me to understand where those cutting edges are. And I just think, you know, Brian, just the very fact that Keith has an advisory board for the Academy of Information and Engineering Technology at Waipahu, that in and of itself is a, a stunning innovation. Do we, do, what do you think yes, about that? Yes. I, I, I think you're right, and I think it's a, it's a model that you know, is working and is proven and, and should, be, should be copied, copied, stolen, redone elsewhere. I mean, that's, that's the way it should be done. Otherwise, you are teaching in a box with no windows, right? You don't, you don't know... Um, you don't know if what you're teaching is relevant anymore or will be relevant in, when these students graduate or is the right subjects that are needed in the industry. Right. And, and it is difficult to bring a board together like that because these are, you know, it's pretty much half of us are working professionals, um, but, but Keith does a great job and, and has brought all of us together from different industries, from building and construction to, you know, electricians to engineers to software engineers to automotive, you know, in my area, at least, uh, all the engineering tech, um, and brought us all together, and along with educators from HDC and UH Manoa and other areas, um, and, and we, we hash out these, these hard problems. Um, mm. But, it, but it's, a lot of, it's a lot of fun to hash it out with teachers there, uh, teachers from the school are there as well on the board, and we, um, we discuss these things, and it's, it's, it's a great collaborative environment, which, as you know, is probably the hardest part, right, of many things. It's building that culture of... Uh, that culture and, and collaborative environment to make it uh, make it successful is, is pretty difficult. Yeah, sometimes, Brian, I think that um, schools overthink this business of developing, you know, external partnerships in the in the wider community. I mean, just the simple act of creating an advisory board like this immediately puts you in a collaborative situation with the community around you. Um, it's such a, a sweet, intuitive, in, uh, you know, instinctual step to take, but right away you've got relationships that you start to build, which could turn into other kinds of partnerships that are, you know, deeper around technology or whatever it is that you're working on. That's, um, exactly. Yeah. Super cool. Okay. So back to mid Pacific for a second, um, during your time as, as chief innovation officer, um, like what were you folks doing with virtual reality and augmented reality and, 3D laser scanning and artificial intelligence. I know we we sort of talked about that a little bit, but what are some of the things that you recall um, during your time that you kicked off where students were actually sure. working on something? So that was that was a lot of lot of fun, uh, amazing things going on. So if we think back to the technology vision statement of Mid Pacific, it is it is founded upon the concept of digital storytelling as one of its key tenants, and we early on always wanted to make sure that our students were not consumers, but they were creators, right? I don't, I don't want to teach students how to watch a movie. I want to teach students how to make a movie. 
I don't want to teach students how to read a book. I want them to write books. And in, in that same mentality, it was how do we enable them with cutting-edge tools to tell stories in ways that haven't been told before? And one way to tell stories in ways that haven't been told before is through virtual reality. And so with VR and, and AR as a natural offshoot of VR, it really was about how do you take a tool like virtual reality and how do you interweave that with the storytelling process so that students can use and leverage it to create uh, a story or um, share their opinion on something or make you feel empathy for a situation through virtual reality. And it is a lot, lot more challenging than, than you think it is. And, and one of the reasons why you don't see mainstream VR movies today, because in the virtual reality experience, as our students kind of um, learned this technology, it became very clear that there's a ton of challenges when you are recording in 360-degree space, hmm. when there's no place to hide the lights and no place to hide the, the camera crew and no place to even hide the camera. Because the user experiencing your film can see in all directions at any time. They can turn their head and look behind them and look above them and look below. And so there's no place to hide anything. Uh, so the way that you tell stories is incredibly different. And, and one way that we taught that at New Pacific was to create 3D virtual environments and, and teaching the students to use 3D game engines, which are very powerful, easy to use, uh, pretty ubiquitous, and, and very low cost. Uh, like Unity, Unity 3D, I think, has a free academic license. And so using something like Unity to create 3D environments that can then be experienced in the VR goggles. Um, so I've seen students create projects where, I mean, the one I remember was this alien abduction where you're watching this this uh, alien abduction. of I think it's either a cow or a, or a car get abducted by this big UFO. But you're looking at it in 3D space, and the student created this all in 3D software. Wow. He's telling a story. He's telling a story, and he's learned the skills like you did when you made your movie. He's learning the skills as an offshoot of his desire to tell the story. Like, I, I, I don't, it's not so much that I need to learn uh, 3D game engine modeling because I want to learn that. It's more like I want to make this cow fly. How do I make this cow fly? Oh, I need to do this, this, and this. And so I need to learn how to do this, this, and this. Um, or I need to learn uh, how to make you know this animated. Uh, whatever, because it's part of my story that I'm trying to tell. And so in, in that way, we interweave storytelling um, with the VR tech to make sure that VR wasn't just kids putting on headsets and playing, you know, virtual reality games. It was students putting on the VR goggles as a way to experience their own work that they created, you know, from, from the tools that they learned in these classes, from 3D modeling to 3D game engine to other things. Um, students also use the LiDAR scanning, or uh, actually use photogrammetry, which is taking multiple series of photos of a 3D object that can then be stitched together to sort of take the representation of that object in 3D space. So if I take 100 photos of you from different angles, I can sort of piece it back together and make, make you 3D. So they did that with uh, clay sculptures that they created through the, the clay class. Um, so it's sort of the, the beautiful merge of you know virtual and then reality. It was actual 3D sculptures of clay uh, scanned and put into a 3D environment to then be experienced through 3D goggles, uh, virtual reality goggles. So there's a lot of a lot of interplay between that kind of stuff. And then we um, we we purchased motion capture suits so students in the dance programs could could work on projects that would 
integrate motion and dance uh, with 3D space and be experienced through VR goggles. So that, that's, you know, the combination of the arts and sciences, um, which is the, the, the theme part, you know, super important to, mm-hmm. to bring the arts back into it. So they're very purposeful, very strategic um, attempts to make sure that the, the technologies never lived on an island, that they were always sort of integrated with other aspects of the curriculum so that we could teach multiple things um, through these tools, what be, be it uh, art or science or uh, animation or even storytelling in general uh, or acting, or, you know, every, everything, all the pieces come together. Right. You know, Brian, it feels to me like we're at an, uh, a very special moment in which empathy is more possible now almost than at any other time because of the ways that technology can put you in touch with things that you wouldn't otherwise have a chance to, to know. What do you what do you think about that? Yeah, yeah. I think um, I think that with the tools that we have, we have the capability to share share stories and perspectives that we we couldn't share before, um, and we can share it to audiences that are larger than we'd ever have a reach we could ever reach before in the past, uh, and we can share faster, almost instantaneously in many ways. So the the tools are there for that kind of sharing. And with that kind of sharing and that kind of story, you know, you, you naturally have empathy. Hey, everyone. It's May Kanata again. Stay with us. We will be right back with some more epic questions for Brian Dote. Hey, I'm Tyler Kern from MarketScale, and you're listening to What School Could Be in Hawaii, a podcast partnership between MarketScale and Josh Rapoon, exploring the latest insights and thought leadership in the world of edtech. If you're enjoying the podcast, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts these days, or just head to marketscale.com, click on industries at the top of the page, and scroll down to edtech. We'll see you there. Hey, everybody. We're back with Brian Dote, currently UI designer and iOS developer at Topiki LLC. Okay, so <laughs> so Brian, um, we're we're down to question number nine. I know um, this is amazing. Um, so you are applying to be an Omidyar fellow here in Hawaii. Is that are you still applying, or has that happened? Or uh, no, I applied and I, I was not accepted. Oh, you were not accepted. So, okay, yeah, yeah. Does, doesn't matter. Um, so your former boss, uh, Mid-Pacific's President Paul Turnbull, said the following about you, Brian. He said, you are deeply intelligent and highly creative, thoughtful and measured in your approach to complex issues and unique in his ability to um, communicate with individuals across corporate, academic, and nonprofit networks. And Peter Ho, who's the CEO of Bank of Hawaii, um, called you a unique blend of right and left brain thinking. So I know, Brian, we, we tend to walk on the humble side of the street in Hawaii. Um, but what I want to know is this. Um, what did you do deliberately and intentionally to become the person described by Turnbull and Peter Ho? I, I think that um, deliberately and over time it becomes habitual is to always approach things from the uh, contrarian viewpoint. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if the sign says you turn left and you see everyone turning left, then I would ask or try or sneak a right turn and see what happens. Um, 
and and it can be annoying to to those that that um, are around you. But I think that it was the continual prodding uh, of not following dogma. Like to me, that's the, that's the worst. Uh, you know, the the following things that are assumed to be true, true and, and are are accepted by everyone to be true. Like I I raise my hand and and, and want to ask like how did we know that's true or what if you know a lot of the what if what if I did this instead. Um, so this natural type of uh, curiosity and this natural type of approaching things from a different perspective on purpose, mm. uh, which which is now habitual, uh, is I think the key. So when I look at an engineering problem, why don't you look at it as a designer? Uh, you're looking at a design problem. Well, how would an engineer solve that? Uh, you look at education. The, the thing when I was a chief innovation officer at Mid-Pacific was to always, always, always maintain the perspective of a non-educator in an education environment. So always try to be a different perspective and a different lens so that group think doesn't happen. You know, if, if six folks are all looking at a problem from one lens and one perspective, uh, I would forcibly try and introspect with a different perspective so that we, uh, we don't have seven people looking at the same problem with the same lens. Mm. Um, it is that, that ability to use a different lens for, for life in general um, that I think leads me to, to be the person that I am today. Yeah. And that's not you know, always, a, always a good thing because you know, sometimes everyone should turn left and you should turn left as well. Um, but, but raising your hand and asking, well, what happens if I turn right? You know, right. What right. if? Why not? You know, how might we? All those questions come out of the natural, natural questioning of, of dogma to me. Yeah. You know, Brian, I think you've explained why my wife finds me annoying sometimes. Because, <laughs> you know, I'm always going left when everybody's going right. And then she's like, what are you doing? You know, and I'm like, that's just where I want to go. Um, but that but but point taken. And that's that's actually for anybody listening to this podcast. You know, it might it might give a person pause to think, where are those opportunities where I could go left instead of right or right instead of left? Um, maybe I'll be a little exactly. bit more intentional and aware of when a moment like that comes and then give it a try and see what happens. Like what's what's the and worst? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then there's strategies by which you can subtly move the discussion to the to the left or to the right. You know what I mean? So like mm, yeah. if everyone is saying this is how it's been done, this is how it's always been done and we're gonna turn left, you know, um, because that's that's the way we do it. Um, there's ways of asking questions that don't seem confrontational, that don't seem um, to to sort of shake the, the foundation of what everyone's beliefs are, that you can still ask, you know, and, and the, the classic one I think is the how might we questions, right? Yeah. Well how might we turn left? Um, and, and by asking it in certain ways, or have we considered, you know, if, if you can position questions in a, in a collaborative way, sometimes you can facilitate discussions that end up with everyone in the room agreeing that, yeah, hell yeah, we should have turned right, you know, that kind yeah. of stuff. But it's yeah. not, it's not always easy and it's not always, um, yeah, it's not always easy. Right. So Brian, we have come down to the end here to question number 10. Wow. Um, here we go. Here we go. Yes. Um, and I, I did, I, I will tell our audience that I gave you a little bit of heads up about what this was going to be about. Um, so, okay, here we go. Um, so Brian, without getting too deep into the weeds, I want to talk about black swan theory. Um, so I'm inspired to do this by my lifelong mentor and teacher who passed away a couple of years ago. His name is um, Doc Barry, Paul Doc Barry. 
and he was a faculty member at Punahou School. And he, by the way, Brian, is the teacher who made it possible for me to do that movie project in his English class. Um, nice. And that's why he's so special to me. So um, Doc wanted me to read a book uh, by a guy named Nassim Talib uh, called The Black Swan, and I am actually doing that now. Um, so a Black Swan event is an event that is, one, completely unpredictable and rare, two, hugely impactful, and three, people love to say after the event, we saw it coming, which, of course, they didn't. Um, so, for example, the Harry Potter books or 9-11 or the rise of the personal computer are all examples of black swan events. And by the way, for thousands of years, all of humanity thought that all swans were white until somebody discovered that there were black swans, uh, you know, in Australia. So here's my question for you, Brian. Um, as I read your resume, I made a bet to myself that you were, over the course of your adult life, your working life, pretty aware that you were proximate to a series of technological, economic, and cultural black swan events. Um, I'm kind of reminded of the Buffalo Springfield lyric, you know, there's something happening here, what it is ain't exactly clear. <laughs> um, so talk to me about this idea, like what did you know and when did you know it? Like how, how much were you aware that you were in and around things that could be called black swan events? Wow! Wow, <laughs> that's a that's a that's a great that's a great question. I'm glad you saved it for last. Yes, um, yes, yeah. So I think I think that you you are right, and that oftentimes, and I, and I think in the book they mentioned it a little bit, is like the the narrative that we create as we look backwards um, is so much easier than the narrative we we predict in the future. So like when when I look back on things, it's easy to kind of make up a story of how how we got there and how that happened. Um, but when you're living in the moment, you sort of don't know the future, so you don't know how the story ends. Um, <clears throat> I, I think the the only time when I when I knew wholeheartedly that this was a, a game changer um, was working on the iPhone, and and that was that was work as we were doing it that we knew was going to change the world. Um, that we, we knew was 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 revolutionary technology. Um, from from the very from the very bottom of it to the very top of it, everything about it was, was sort of we were we were creating and inventing um, things that hadn't been created or invented before, and and in, in that moment, this is pretty rare in life. Um, working on it was exciting for that reason. We were we were you know inventing the future, um, and I was working on a device months and months and months ahead of the public seeing it. The public had a glimpse of it at a certain point at Macworld, I think, in like January. But the phone wasn't going to come out till summertime. Uh, and here we were, hidden in hidden in a lab, um, with with barely any access to a device that we're trying to write code for. You know, we had to go into this lab to work on it, and then leave the devices in the lab and, and go back to our offices. And it was pretty pretty crazy tight security and all of those other things that you can imagine, uh, making it making it pretty difficult. But we knew, or I knew, that this was. This was a game changer. This this was, well, well, maybe not necessarily unpredictable. This was a black swan. Um, we didn't know. We didn't know how big it was going to be. Like I think you, you never really know. But but you knew that it was going to be huge. You knew that it was going to be millions and millions, tens or hundreds of millions of users over time. Um, 
and and that was that was the the experience that I had um, when I when I worked on it. And that that kind of experience is, as you can imagine, like just the definition of a black swan event. Like that kind of experience is rare. Um, I think you're lucky if you have it once in your lifetime. And for me, working on on the first iPhone was was that experience. Wow, that's just, and I go back to what we talked about earlier with Steve Case talking about convergence, uh, you know, way back in in the mid-90s. Yeah, that he that yeah. he, he had some sort of prescient kind of thought in his head, uh, without knowing what the technology was actually going to be, the hardware and the software, not knowing that yet, but some idea that there was going to be some kind of convergence that would happen, uh, because that's the way the world was was heading, even back in the in the mid nineties. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And it's it's amazing, um, you know, to to work on something where now nowadays you know you have hundreds of millions of users. I mean, it's <clears throat> it's pretty mind-boggling, um, um, pretty unbelievable, pretty unbelievable. And, and you know, my day job, I mean, this podcast is a labor of love for me, but my day job is actually at the Apple store here in Honolulu, and I'm now currently selling the 11th generation of that iPhone. And Isn't it, that crazy? It is yeah. crazy, and it's an astonishing piece of technology, but really no more astonishing than when it first arrived. It's, it's gotten more sophisticated in what it can deliver. But as, as a device, it hasn't really gained, you know, in black swan, you know, in its black swan nature since it, it first arrived. I mean, you know, it is what it is, but it's pretty fantastic to see what people can do with it now, these many years after it first came out. Exactly, it's, uh, it's, it's, um, it's evolved over time, but it hasn't been a revolution since. Right, right. And I'm imagining, Brian, that at the time that that was happening, you were having conversations with people who weren't just doing their jobs and with their heads down, you know, the hedgehogs who were just doing what they needed to do, that there were people who were actually having conversations about what was happening in which you guys were actively trying to figure out what the implications were of, of this thing that you were working on? Is that a fair statement? Actually, I'm not, I'm not sure how, you know, and maybe I was naive or younger or um, just working crazy, crazy long hours, head down. Um, I, I honestly don't know if I recall discussions about implications. Mm. Uh, I don't, and I think that is common amongst technologists and it is, it is one um, one of the negative sides of technology is we we weren't we weren't or at least I wasn't in the team that I was a part of we weren't thinking or talking or discussing um, that like impl- implications in in at least in in a societal transformative way um, you know we we may be talking about implications in terms of app performance or stability or scalability but not not like what does this mean you know like what is what does this device mean to the world when we're done and what are the implications of putting putting this much computing horsepower in a tiny device mean mm-hmm. and what does ubiquitous connectivity mean and i don't think we, we i honestly don't think we um we tackled those issues mm-hmm. um there's more of the we're flying at 100 or we're driving at 150 miles per hour and we're trying to finish this thing on time and Wow. And it's crazy, and, and we keep changing the specs, and we, we keep having to redo stuff. And, and oh my God, you know, June is right around the corner, and are we going to finish on time? And he's going to kill us. And yeah, there's more of that. Wow, that's just, that sounds so wild and crazy. Uh, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. That's really great. It was pretty crazy. Pretty crazy. Yeah. 
So, Brian Dote, thank you so much for um, this oh, opportunity to interview you today. You know, the, the preparation that I go through to prepare for these interviews is one of the best parts of this podcast project for me, and, and most especially in preparing for your interview today. Um, it was a real joy spending these days this past week getting to know you through your resume and some of the things that you've done. And um, I really appreciate the opportunity to be able to pull some of that uh, um, stuff out of you today, some of the really interesting things that you've done and the insights that you have. So um, mahalo. Thank you for being on the show today. No, pleasure was all mine. Thank you, Josh, for having me on. We can't thank you enough for your curiosity and commitment as you listen to this episode of the What School Could Be in What You Podcast. As an aspiring learner, the uncertainty of this COVID-19 pandemic has literally created a different reality for not just me, but all of my peers. As my team of creators from Hawk Media Productions now navigate what collaboration, creativity, and communication looks like, we are inspired to believe it is a moment in time for all of us to use this opportunity to make learning and serving come alive for others. The stories in our history books often reveal the lessons that is within these dark moments. When sparks of innovation and boldness flourish to ignite movement of change for our schools, our community, and our world. To each one of our listeners, we want to thank you for your courage in embracing the opportunities of what school could be here in Hawaii and beyond. Let's keep changing our world together. Welcome back to season one, semester two of the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast. We are so excited to share all of the new educators for this month. So coming up next is Heather Balosis, the lead elementary teacher at Hawaii Technology Academy's Maui campus. Find the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast in Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher, as well as at mltsinhawaii.com. Join the ongoing conversation across social media. Look for Most Likely to Succeed in Hawaii on Facebook and at MLTS in Hawaii on Instagram and Twitter. Tag your posts with hashtag what school could be Hashtag Deeper Learning, Hashtag EdChat, and Hashtag Education. The first season of our podcast ends shortly. Stay tuned for special on-the-road episodes that will air from time to time from May through August. And stay tuned for information about Season 2, coming in the fall of 2020. We want to hear from you. Send your comments, questions, and feedback to mltsinhawaii at gmail.com. If you love this podcast series, we would really appreciate a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It's the best way to help us reach a wider audience of innovative educators. And please feel free to share this series with colleagues, friends, and family. Your host is Josh Rapoon. Our podcast consultant is Ryan Ozawa. Our audio engineer for this episode is Daniel Gillard. The editor for this episode is Mae Kanata. Our post-production student manager under the guidance of Matthew Williams. Learn more at hawkmediaproductions.com. And special thanks to Ted Dintersmith, author and education change agent. <laughs>
Now, off to your next epic adventure. Class dismissed.